Good morning, everyone. This is Johnny Tan, author of From My Mama's Kitchen, Food for the Soul, Recipes for Living. Welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk radio show. Here's a quick announcement. Our February heart-centered and passion-driven Inspirations for Better Living digital magazine designed to help moms build a better future for themselves, their families, and loved ones is now live at inspirationsforbetterliving.com. February's theme is The Enduring Power of Love. The magazine offers inspirational stories from our dedicated team of experts to help you navigate your current situation with confidence in your motherhood journey as the COO, if not the CEO, of your family. So please go to inspirationsforbetterliving.com and treat yourself to some engaging, entertaining, and enlightening stories. You deserve it. As for our radio show this morning, my guest for today is Connie McReynolds, Ph.D. Dr. Connie is a licensed psychologist and certified rehabilitation counselor with more than 30 years of experience in the field of rehabilitation counseling and psychology. She is the founder of Neurofeedback Clinics in Southern California. Dr. Connie works with children and adults to reduce or eliminate conditions of ADHD, anxiety, anger, depression, chronic pain, learning problems, and trauma. She earned her Ph.D. in Rehabilitation Psychology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Dr. Connie gained valuable experiences in the Outpatient Substance Abuse Treatment Program at the Middleton VA Hospital, the Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation Neuropsychological Clinic at Merita Hospital, and the Mendota Mental Health Institute. Her wholehearted mission is to bring hope and resolution to those who are struggling with the symptoms of ADHD, their parents and teachers. Dr. Connie's Solving the ADHD Riddle Book takes readers on a journey into the intricate world of behavioral and learning challenges to gain a deeper understanding of ADHD and processing difficulties. Readers will also learn to navigate the complex landscape of diagnosis and treatment, advocate effectively for the child or student, and create a nurturing and supporting environment for learning and growth, fostering a better and hopeful future for the children. As for our kitchen table conversation this morning, Dr. Connie and I will be talking about her remarkable life's journey and the real cause and lasting solutions to a child's struggle to learn from a book, Solving the ADHD Riddle. Happy Wednesday, Dr. Connie, and welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me today. This is so exciting to be with you, and I'm just looking forward to our conversation. Wonderful. It is a pleasure to have you with me solving the ADHD riddle, the real cause and lasting solutions to your child's struggle to learn is a tremendous, insightful book. The information offered is extremely helpful for people who are exposed to the ADHD world, and also, more importantly, for everyone else who wants to be educated about it. So congratulations on this release. Well, thank you so much, and thank you for having me today. Well, let's get started to get to know you a little bit right. better. So please give us a quick walkthrough of your life from childhood to the present moment. Well, I grew up in a rural part of the Midwest in Kansas, so... Uh, Work was not a foreign concept uh, when we grow up in those areas. And my mother was a teacher of the second grade. She taught in the same classroom of second grade for 32 years. And my father was actually uh, taking care of the family farm. So he had inherited that from his parents. So kind of a long line of uh, family conditions and structures there. My Mother's family was very invested in education. I had an uncle who was a professor, an aunt who was the dean of a college of education. As I said, my mother taught for 32 years in the same classroom. And so I really kind of, I joke about growing up in the second grade because she started teaching second grade in the same school system I attended when I started in kindergarten and all the way through my academic career at that school. And so I learned a lot about the classroom and about uh, differences in children. And I just so remember, and I put this in my book, about this little boy that she was telling me about. And I was young. I was still a little kid. 
Uh, but this little boy couldn't learn how to read, and she was really concerned about him. And over the summer, at her own expense and time, with me in tow, uh, she drove this little boy 45 miles each way to the nearest university where they had a university teaching center where they actually diagnosed him with a condition called dyslexia, which at the time was not very well understood. I'm still not sure how well we understand it today, but certainly in that time frame, it was something very new. And the teachers and the institute there at, the, at that university helped him learn how to read and taught her how to help him learn how to read. And as I was writing the book, I really, that story came back and I just remembered how innovative my mother was. At one point, she realized that children were going to need to learn how to type. So she had these selectric typewriters donated. She had six of them donated to her classroom and she was teaching these second graders how to type properly. <laughs> so that was something really different and new at that time. So she was kind of on the edge of things. <laughs> That's very interesting. Very, very interesting. What you see for us, we're thinking like, oh, my God, I can't believe this. My mom is the teacher, right, in the same school. So the good news is you can't mess with me. I know people. The bad news is I can't mess up. <laughs> That's exactly right. You're so correct on that second part, <laughs> probably more so than the other, because it was a small town. Everyone yeah. knew my mother. <laughs> in the town, in the school, everyone knew my mother. <laughs> so there was, like, no variation off the path. <laughs> there you go. There you go. You see, that's what everybody wants to hear. It's like, uh-oh, <laughs> straight as an arrow. <laughs> Uh -huh. You just had to. It was just like, mm, because everyone knew my mother. And it just wasn't even a comment that someone would say something. I just knew. This was a small town. Everyone knew everything right. anyway. But right. it was particularly challenging <laughs> for uh, for me because, yeah. you know, oh, my goodness, everyone, everyone knew everything. So, yes, it did, you know, kind of help you keep on your path, though, help you keep on my path. <laughs> <laughs> Very, very interesting. But there's a lot of magic in living in a small town. I remember visiting my Italian foster family for the first time in Papa Bluff, Missouri, and the sign mm. reads 17,500, and everybody knows everybody. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, uh, my town was comprised of 2,000 people. <laughs> wow. Oh, my God. <laughs> That one, you the really entire, know everybody. <laughs> oh, you really know everyone because in the entire high school, uh -huh. there were 200 students oh, in wow. my entire high school. <laughs> wow. wow. So everyone knew everyone, knew where everyone lived, <laughs> knew what everyone did career-wise, right. what right. car they drove. There was right. nothing private. <laughs> That's right. There you go. You're talking about neighborhood watch. <laughs> That's nothing neighborhood watch at its right. best. Nothing up by anyone. <laughs> there you go. There you go. That's fantastic. It's really wonderful. It's good to reminisce good old days in some ways. It's funny, but these are some of the things that are missing, I guess, in some ways. But it's just wonderful yeah. and to to yeah. talk about those kind of things. Why did you develop a passion for rehabilitation counseling and psychology? Well, it's it's kind of um it was kind of a process of exploration, mm -hmm. I would say, because in my 20s, I was working for a utility company. There was a big utility company that had moved into my region and it was a good paying job. And so I was kind of there for about 6 years, but I have this tendency to get a little restless, I've noticed, as I look back on my career. And that restlessness was curiosity about what else is out there. Mm -hmm. And I uh, went into another, I went into a, a sales position, and I learned a lot there, but I realized it wasn't my true calling. So one day I decided that same university my mother had taken um, this little boy to, I'd also attended for a couple of years, and I thought, you know, I... I think I'm just going to go up there and get their course catalog. And back in the day, 
This was well before anything internet. So you actually picked up a big, big catalog <laughs> that has all the descriptions of all the programs. There are courses. And so I drove up and picked that up and came home with it. And I thought, you know, I know there's something else for me, but I'm not quite sure what it is. And as I was reading through all the descriptions, the one that resonated the most with me was counseling. And I hadn't really even considered that before. But I was reading these course descriptions, and I thought, this really feels like a good fit for me. And so I enrolled, and I did some summer courses. This is for my master's degree. So I did some summer courses, and uh, I was recruited into this other program, Rehabilitation Counseling, by the faculty there. Uh, In part, they had a federal grant, and it would cover my tuition and pay me a stipend if I became a rehabilitation counselor and then went to work for the state agency. And I thought, well, these courses align. I know. These courses Mm -hmm. align very well with what uh, my goal is. It was all Mm -hmm. about helping people, and I liked the concept that it was based on identifying clients' strengths and then figuring out, okay, what barriers are getting in their way to be successful in their jobs, And so we learned all these strategies and assessments and tools and techniques about really how to mitigate barriers. And so there, that was my heart and soul. That just came full bloom (laughs) with that because then I graduated. I ended up being recruited to the state capitol, the rehab services agency there. I worked there for seven years. And it was doing exactly that work. And I became an advocate. Uh, I did legislative advocacy training. And I was at the signing of the ADA on the South Lawn of the White House in July of 1990, three rows back from President Bush when he signed that legislation into effect that day. And it was just, it was like everything was going in the right direction. And I had set some career goals. For that, which I thought would last a career, I was done with all my goals in seven years. <laughs> it's like, well, I thought this was going to last a little longer. <laughs> now what do I do? And so then I decided, well, my mom and my aunt, who was the dean of a college of education, they said, it's time for you to get your doctorate. <laughs> so oh, off I went to the Madison uh, it was a top-rated program for rehabilitation counseling mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. rehabilitation psychology in the country, the top doc program. It's the only one I applied to. And I was accepted and moved there and three years later graduated and started my career teaching at universities. I was there for 10 years at Kent State University in mm-hmm. uh, Ohio and then moved to Southern California where I just retired um, last year at the end of my 25th year total. 15 years out here in Southern California. And uh, during the time at uh, this university here in California, I developed the institute. I developed my first neurofeedback clinics. And then when I was ready to retire and during the pandemic, when everything got shut down out here, uh, I pivoted, created my own company, and then rolled out those services to the community when I could no longer do it at the university. Fantastic. That's really awesome. Let's talk about ADHD. What is ADHD, and why is it spreading so rapidly in today's youth? Well, ADHD, for those who may not know the actual um, term, it's called mm-hmm. Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. Uh, this diagnosis has really been around for decades. Uh, there used to be one called ADD. It's still kind mm-hmm. of referred to at times, which was the Attention Deficit Disorder. And, right. Um, there's kind of multiple things that have gone on in the last 20 years. One is certainly we're becoming more aware of when children are struggling, and I think that's a good thing. Um, one of the things that I think a lot of professionals were a little um, less than fully joyed over was when the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual uh, Revision 5 came out some time back, where they had changed up, and there was a lot of controversy around how there was influence on these diagnostic criterias and some of the influence that was probably not um, what one would hope for in this kind of a setting. Uh, And so the ADHD criteria in particular became extremely broad. It's a huge catchment area, 
And we all started kind of joking a little bit. It's like, well, almost anyone could qualify for the diagnosis of ADHD now based on this criteria. And so you kind of have a really, really broad category that almost anything and anyone, any kind of behavior can qualify for. And you have a greater awareness of children who are not doing well in school. And so both are contributing. Um, and certainly, I think our greater awareness is really important. But I think there's also a myth or two that's around the ADHD diagnosis. And that's really what my book is about, is busting some of these myths about mm-hmm. what is ADHD and what can be done about it. Interesting. Yeah. So what are those diagnoses in a way? And one of the major things is that are the mythology that are being used out there, are they fairly accurate? Mm, I reserve a little bit of um, <laughs> jumping on board about labels and diagnoses. Yeah. I, I am a licensed psychologist in California. I'm a certified rehabilitation counselor in all 50 states and Canada. And back to my roots of rehabilitation counseling, which goes back about three decades now, one of the things and the kind of the precepts of that uh, mm-hmm. philosophy and orientation is that people are not their diagnostic label. And I hold very firmly to that. So mm-hmm. parents can call, adults can call, I, I treat ADHD and adults as well. They'll call, I've been diagnosed with this, or I'm on this type of medication, I'm not sure if it's working, or my child's having difficulties with this. And part of the myth that I really want to bust (laughs) on Mm -hmm. anything that's going on is that ADHD cannot be treated. I actually Mm -hmm. had someone say that to me the other day. It's like, well, we have ADHD, and we know there's nothing that can be done about it. That could not be further from the truth. But there is a lot of propelled messaging out there that says the only treatment that's going to help is medication. The only treatment that's going to make any difference for your child in school is to get this child on these medications to treat this. And what I've learned in the 15 years I've been doing this in my clinics is that those medications very well may work for people around the world because obviously I have not worked with everyone Mm -hmm. on the planet who has ADHD and could be a whole of people for whom those medications are working great. Right. The challenge is for the people for whom it isn't working great, and those are the ones who end up in my clinic, or the ones who say, I want to get off this medication, or I can't get the medication anymore is what's happening now. People can't get the medications, and they're looking for other sources. So part of the myth is that it can't be treated, which is not true. The other part of the myth is I think we're diagnosing the wrong things. Mm-hmm. because if we aren't finding the root cause of what this is, we're never going to get the right intervention to right. help children or adults who are right. struggling. We have right. to understand what's really going on in order to create the right intervention in the right order. And that's right. another thing that I talk to psychiatrist students about. If you're going right. to diagnose, you have to understand what you're diagnosing, and then you have to get the treatments in the correct order in order for things to have lasting outcomes. Right, that's true. And especially, too, with ADHD, when someone, and especially in this case children, uh, label, that stays with them for the rest of their life. It really can. And yeah. in some cases, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a mixed bag, and I've seen it happen, mm-hmm. Whereas, and I, I kind of equate it to a greater understanding because, If, for example, I'm an adult and I've had this happen. So I had a gentleman come in my clinic two or three years ago. Mm -hmm. He was in his 50s. He was in jeopardy of losing what he said yet another job because he couldn't remember what his supervisor was telling him. And he just thought it was because he wasn't very smart. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, let's run these assessments and let's see what's going on, and we can do this in 30 minutes. It's computer-based, and we'll figure out what's happening here. We did that, and he had auditory processing problems that were absolutely affecting his ability to remember verbal instructions. Mm. And when I shared this with him in his 15-page report, he broke down in tears in my conference room and said for the first time, Maybe it wasn't because he wasn't smart. And I said, this has nothing to do with his intelligence. 
Right. You can be a genius. And we've worked with geniuses that come through my clinic, but they're failing out in life and school mm-hmm. because they actually, underneath all of this, have these auditory and visual processing problems that in 30 minutes we find this, and then we build a training plan that actually retrains the brain in those mm-hmm. areas that are weak, and we do that in about 20 hours, and mm-hmm. then the person goes on and has an improved life. That's amazing. That really is. Well, it's one of those things where we are our own worst critique. That's the danger of it as yeah. adults. For yeah. kids, at least, like, uh, I'm still learning here. <laughs> but mm-hmm. adults is where the situation gets more acute, unfortunately, because mm-hmm. it's self-inflicted mm-hmm. insecurity, so to speak. Well, it is, and kind of back to that label. So understanding mm-hmm. what's going on is a relief, mm-hmm. and, but we, I don't think we have to label it. As, oh, I have this. It's like, well, what's happening here is the brain just doesn't have the processing strength in these particular areas. It isn't that you have a diagnosis. You have a situation where the brain just needs to be trained in these particular areas and going to the gym. So Mm -hmm. the label can be helpful. I've always said labels can be helpful to get people in the door for services. But that's where the label needs to stop. We don't Correct. want to label people and say, oh, you have ADHD, or I, I hear things like, oh, I, I am. And anything where we use the word I am and follow it, it's, it's way <laughs> too powerful. We don't understand what that is. I'm a dyslexic. No. It's like, well, no, you are not. You may have a visual processing challenge right. in your brain, but that's all that's going on here. Right. So right. labeling to me, and that's really been my you know 30-year career, is, Let's not get too tied up to what the label is, but let's look at what (laughs) is working, Mm -hmm. what needs to be enhanced, what we can do about that, and can that make a difference. That's very interesting, very true. So why did you write the book, Solving the ADHD Riddle? Because after 15 years, I realized this information needs to get out. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was in the middle of the pandemic, um, and in California, Gosh, almost two years ago now, we were, yeah, exactly two years ago, we mm-hmm. were looking at the potential for another complete shutdown out here. My clinic had been closed down at the university, and I had pivoted. I had contacted a colleague of mine who had a clinic in another town, and she had space, and we just moved in and started uh, providing services. I built my company. And what I also... I contacted the, the software developer at that time, and I just said to him, look, we're, we're in another situation out here. The people need to be able to get these services, but if we get shut down again, we're going to be back in the situation where some people can't get to me to come in. And I said, I need to be able to deliver these services beyond a 20-mile catchment range of my clinics because not everyone can drive in here. Mm-hmm. And we had a heart-to-heart conversation late at night. <laughs> He's on the East Coast, I'm on the West Coast, and I think it was probably 10.30 or 11 o'clock his time <laughs> when we were talking. And he agreed to create this for me. And a month later, he called me and he said, we have a solution for you. And we started piloting it, and we can do this now, regardless of where people are sitting in California and in some cases beyond, depending on circumstances. And when that happened, it was at that point that I decided, okay, I can put this book out. Because mm-hmm. I can put the book out, and for the people who aren't within 20 miles of where I live, we may still be able to work with them in some capacity mm-hmm. because we have some telehealth options now. And that's really why I put it out. And I directed it specifically this book toward parents and teachers. Again, back to my mother's. Remember, yeah. she was she was in second grade for 32 years. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I just felt like if I could reach the teachers, if I can reach the parents, and then ultimately academic folks, but particularly the educational administrators in school districts, if we can start having a conversation about what they can do for these children who are struggling in school. We know that if a child is not reading on grade level by the end of third grade, when they enter fourth grade, they have to use reading to learn. 
up until the end of third grade, they're learning how to read. And when they cross that pivotal mark, if they can't read sufficiently, their academic progress is going to be impacted, and we see that. This is what drives a lot of uh, junior high and high school dropouts, kids ending up on the streets, juvenile systems, teenage girls' pregnancy, and other unfortunate situations. And if we could get this into school systems and teach teachers and administrators how to use this assessment, and then how can you correct this with 20 hours of brain training, I ran a pilot project in an elementary Mm -hmm. school, and we had fabulous outcomes. And that is a chapter in the book because Mm -hmm. I wanted that out there as well. There's hope for this. There are solutions that are more effective. And when you can figure out what's actually happening, there's nothing wrong with the school assessments that they're doing. I have a lot of friends who are school psychologists and uh, special education folks. But they have told me they're limited because the information they get is not nearly as specific as the information I can get, and I can get it in 30 minutes. I'm so glad you (laughs) went into detail a little bit right there. What I'm looking at is this. I mean, the intentions are good, right? Because you can treat ADHD with medication. But the issue here is that then you're treating the symptoms. Okay, this is how you are. Let's go live with it for the rest of your life kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. Versus you coming in with behavior modification that say, hey, let's kind of redo it's a rehab kind of thing in a way, right? I mean, crudely speaking, yeah. but it can be done because yeah. you're talking about re-engineering ourselves for the rest of our lives. That's correct because the, the research shows this holds. Once we train the brain, mm-hmm. the brain learns through repetition, which is what this program is about. Mm-hmm. For each person, it's individually created. And by doing the repetition of the exercises, like going to the gym, you're mm-hmm. actually training those brain muscles, if you will. It's the neuronal right. pathways. Right. The difference is with the brain, when we learn something, we tend to hold on to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, unlike when we go to the gym for our physical body, we have to keep going back. With right. this, you don't. With our system, at least, you don't have to keep right. going back because we get to the core of what's going on. We train yeah. specific to those areas, reinforce it, and then just like adults who perhaps learned how to ride a bike when we were children, we can be off of a bike for 30 years. We can still get back on that bike and know how to ride That's it. That's correct. Yes, we can. Re- it's also, I joke with parents too, mm-hmm. so it's also why those bad habits are hard to break <laughs> because mm-hmm. they're hardwired in. Right, <laughs> right. No, it's true. But what happens here, again, you're building new neural pathway. And I'm giving you an example here. I mean, maybe on the lighter side of the situation because I do teach ballroom dancing, for example, right? And I... Mm-hmm. For the adults, and I tell them the way where we work and whatnot, we end up walking bow-legged or this way. <laughs> in ballroom dancing, mm-hmm. you got to make sure one foot is in front of the other straight. We're talking about straight line here. Why is that important? Yeah. Believe it or not, when you get old, when you start like walking, your weight is on both feet. That's not walking. That's mm-hmm. wobbling. It's almost like the little duck walk kind of thing. Well, guess what? Yeah. As you get older somebody bumped you, you're going to fall because your body cannot That's react right. fast enough to kind of mm-hmm. save you, so to speak. That's right. And then they are able to redo this. I teach at senior living centers. Interesting to whereby like to say, oh my God, yeah, when I was a kid, I was able to do yeah, That's right. We got to go back and it's got nothing to do with young or old <laughs> because mm-hmm. you're building new neural mm-hmm. pathways here. Exactly right. It is, and it's very important that we recognize that this whole concept of neuroplasticity, which mm-hmm. I talk about in the brain, people think, oh, you hit a certain age and it's a downhill slide <laughs> to death <laughs> with your cognitive functioning, and that just could not be further from the truth. Right. Uh, can we tune up our brains? Absolutely. Is mm-hmm. this a guaranteed thing we're going to end up with a cognitive loss? We don't have to. Right. We absolutely do not have to. Right. And there are ways to do this. I actually have a unit down in a senior citizen center here in Southern California mm-hmm. for people who are wanting to tune up their brains and keep their functioning and keep their minds sharp and agile. And you know, they can do very well with this. Very interesting. Can you go into a little detail for us in terms of what uh, auditory and visual processing problems and why do they matter? Sure. So, 
and I think that's a really good question. So the first thing where I always like to start is that this is not about vision or hearing. So I do uh, check with parents and adults to make sure their hearing has been checked or their vision has been checked. And if they've done all of that, then we do these assessments to determine kind of what is happening. And in the book, I have several case studies. These are actual case studies. Obviously, I've changed the details uh, to protect the those uh, identities in there. But for example, one of the things I think it's a little easier to understand is the auditory processing. So we'll start there. So for auditory processing, maybe you have a friend or a spouse or a child that it feels like it just goes in one ear and out the other. We hear people talk about that. doesn't matter what I say. It's like it never lands. That's one of the signs of auditory processing problems, actually. And one of the other questions is, can this person follow multi-step instructions? It's like, oh, no. If I say, you know, go pick up your toys, get your shoes, put your backpack away and feed the dog, I'll turn around and my child's playing with the dog. And it's like, well, okay. And other instructions, same thing. It doesn't land. Um, Children and adults who have the auditory processing, if there are other sounds present, part of what can happen for some folks is that all sounds come into the brain at equal proportion. In other words, some people have the ability, and this part I can do, I can tune out all kinds of noise distractions around me and focus on one thing. There are other people that every sound in the room comes in in equal measure, and so Mm -hmm. it's very hard for a child or an adult who has this to be able to zero in on the person who's speaking to them and fully attend to what's being said. And this is where spouses will say, I told you to get the milk on the way home. (laughs) (laughs) How many times do I need to tell you to take out the garbage? (laughs) Yeah. 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 So these are the day-to-day life stressors of Mm -hmm. someone who has auditory processing. Because if I cannot remember that you just told me something, there's going to be friction that occurs, whether you're an adult or an adult. It's going to be friction. So yeah. look at the friction points that are existing within communications. Those are clues. So in the book, I talk about behaviors being clues to be decoded. Mm-hmm. So the auditory, I think we're maybe a little more tuned in, but we don't have the framework to really understand what we're observing. The visual processing, I think, is a little more nebulous for people to be able to pick up on because it just seems like this is a frustrating situation. And so Mm -hmm. up on my website, I actually have a video clip of a young man who was talking about his conditions. He didn't break it out in auditory or visual, but he was talking about as a teenager or as a child, his parents would say, go make your bed. He would walk into the bedroom and he would look at the messy bed and he he tells the story. He said he would look at that and he said, I have no idea how to do this and this is going to take hours to get done. (laughs) I cannot do this. And he just described it. It was like this is an absolutely impossible task for him to complete. Mm -hmm. And other kinds of signs for younger children can Mm -hmm. be if this child has extremely messy handwriting, can't formulate letters properly when writing, when copying words or sentences, they're missing letters or words. Uh, They mix up uh, mathematical signs, uh, spelling words they can't quite get. Uh, And so there can be that. There can also be this is a child who's labeled as clumsy. So -hmm. this can be a child, and again, the vision has to have already been checked on this. And if the vision's okay, or glasses have been used and this is still going on, then this is a child that might be bumping into things, tripping over things, dropping things, knocking things off, and just kind of a train wreck described by parents. It's like, you know, we don't know what to do here. That the, All of these examples are signs of visual processing difficulties, and we find all of this when we do this 30-minute assessment. And when we can find that, then in the book, I've given parents and teachers tips for how to mm-hmm. work with children who have these variations on auditory or visual processing problems. There's also a checklist at the end of both the auditory and the visual processing chapters for parents to kind of see, you know, is this something going on up on my website? I actually created a free brief assessment 
uh, for people just kind of go there. It's like, well, there's seven signs of this, you know. If you've got these things going on, this could be an indicator that there could be something happening here with this. And so it's important to also understand children can have some of both. And that's where it gets a little more difficult for parents to kind of figure out what to do, and there's a lot of trial and error um, with that. But if auditory processing, we know that a child or adult isn't doing this, then put things in writing, create lists and checklists. And the opposite's true. If the visual isn't working, then and auditory seems to be working, then play to the strengths. Again, back to my career heritage of sorts, uh, mm-hmm. which is figure out the strengths, play to that. And then what are the barriers and create the workarounds? Very interesting. That's very interesting. I just tell my mom when my room is messy, I love it that way. I saw it on TV. I kind of like it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's been all kinds of <laughs> that's comments right. they, they, well, <laughs> <laughs> But I'm just kidding. You're right. For me, interestingly enough, I think what came back to mind for me, and to, even to this very day in some ways, I remember as a child, I have difficulty in remembering people's names. I'm good at everything mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. And so what happened was people say, oh, like, think about this way. And you look at him or her this way and then kind of associate something. It didn't work because it's just too much hassle. And what happened mm-hmm. was it motivated me to be a leader. So in a sense, people remember my name. I don't necessarily have to remember theirs. And mm-hmm. I would ask, mm-hmm. and by the way, I'm so sorry. I met so many people, and I know you mentioned to me your name. Can you tell me again when we mm-hmm. uh, are one-on-one, so to speak? And that has helped. And mm-hmm. I immediately, where I would admit it to wherever I go, and I say, okay, guys, you know, I just want to let you all know. I know you mentioned all your names and so forth, but I can't necessarily remember everybody's name because I'm not very good at that. <laughs> and mm-hmm. taking mm-hmm. ownership. And then that gives me that quiet yeah. confidence, so to speak. Sure, absolutely. And then people, you know, can play to your strengths then. And that's right. really what we all are trying to figure out how to do in our world and supporting everyone. And that's really from the standpoint of, point of the book when I thought about, okay, who are the most vulnerable within yeah. this? And it doesn't mean that the adults aren't, but children if they don't have an advocate in their corner and parents don't understand what's going on, then they're kind of on their own in a sad mm-hmm. way, no matter how good the parents are, because there's a lot of pressure that is put on children to perform and get it right, and why do I always have to remind you of this, and where's your backpack, and why do you keep losing it, and we were up until midnight, what happened to the homework, mm-hmm. it didn't get turned in, and you know the gentle parents, are one type there is another parent that has less patience and right, you know right. they can get a little more punitive when things aren't working and mm-hmm. that's another piece of that behavioral um, portion that i put in there is that if the punishments aren't yielding lasting results then it's the wrong path for the right. this isn't going to work more of that isn't going to work if someone can't remember what's being said, saying it over and over again isn't going to improve the memory. It's just going to frustrate everyone. You need right. to find another pathway. Right. Well, tell us about the neurofeedback that you've developed and the beauty of the games. This is a fun part of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is. It's, um, so we start really with the assessment to identify those areas of weakness. Uh, and we play to the strengths and then support the weaknesses while they're training their brain. And neurofeedback has actually been around since the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also called EEG biofeedback. And really when we think about biofeedback, most people have heard of some type of biofeedback. And so with that started well before the neurofeedback, where there might be a little um, clip put on a finger to measure the pulse, uh, maybe measure respiration, and people learn that by changing their breath work, other muscles relaxing, that they could change their heart rate and their breath rate. And so that was biological information, biological feedback, that the word became shortened to biofeedback. And so neurofeedback is built on the same principle. It's measuring a bodily 
activity, in this case, we're measuring brain waves, which is why mm-hmm. it's called neurofeedback. So we use sensors that are like the EKG sensors. If you've ever gone to the doctor, they measure functioning of your heart. They put little tacky little things on your body in certain places. Uh, this is the same concept, only we use, we're using kind of what's called single channel. Uh, so we use one sensor in a location. We have the ground. And we're measuring brain waves, and those brain waves are fed into the computer. So there's nothing that's going back to the person or the brain. The person is seeing the brain wave readout on the computer, and we have training plans that are created that look like low impact video games. And the training plan is a series of these training programs, we just call them video games for short, but they're training programs that as the person goes through these in a repetitive manner, it's actually training those areas we have found to be weaker. And we can get rid of hyperactivity. So we literally resolve hyperactivity in the brain permanently in about 10 hours of brain training in most cases. And so that goes away. And it's a big changer for people who have that because if someone does have that hyperactivity in the brain, it just is kind of like a white noise or an interference signal in the brain that interferes with the ability to attend, concentrate, focus, and remember. And people who have this have not known anything differently typically because they've always had it. Why they've had it, we don't know. We don't know the why of of the causation of all of this. But we do know that we can affect change with that, and we have with many hundreds of people. We have results of hyperactivity, and we measure it. So we have an evidence-based program with that assessment that we measure at the beginning. We measure after every 10 hours of brain training, and some people need two sets. Some people need three sets of that. Um, If we're dealing with mild autism or moderate, it's going to be a long haul. But we have been able to affect change for even children who have some of those diagnoses as well. That's very, very interesting. But Kate, I'm sorry. I was trying to get her to say we can play 10 hours of Xbox so that the parents won't bother <laughs> you, but unfortunately it didn't work. <laughs> well, the Xbox is a whole other, <laughs> whole other thing. <laughs> you know, no, I, I was just kidding. I mean, but that's fascinating, though, because you have developed something that actually it makes it fun, too, because in the cost of Mm-hmm. playing or doing something engaging but it's not serious because a lot of times if it's too serious people don't want to take it because then it becomes a chore. Mm-hmm. That's right. This will work with the person so uh, the developer who created these programs as the person's brain gets stronger these programs will ramp up. They get tougher and so people's brains are being enhanced just like at the gym. If I start out lifting five pounds of weights and I keep doing that for six months, I'm not going to gain any benefit. At some point, I need to keep adding more weights to get stronger. And that's what these programs do is as people's brains get stronger, the games get stronger. And that is what really dials in the repetition and the strengthening of those brain muscles, so to speak. And when we do that and we get that completely anchored in, that's what tends to hold. So there's good longitudinal studies about this. We've seen in the research, we've seen children's IQ scores improve substantially, in some cases almost 20 points. And this is where I really have a conversation with schools and the testing that's done. Because if a child actually has auditory and visual processing problems, this is what's so important for parents to understand. And teachers, everyone needs to understand this. If this child has auditory and visual processing problems and I'm giving them a test, all I'm doing is testing their ability to take that test. And if they don't do well taking that test, then those test results are interpreted as this child may have cognitive delay or developmental delay. And I think there are probably tens if not hundreds of thousands of children in special education in this country who have auditory and visual processing problems that are not doing well in that structure because it's not teaching to their actual capabilities. It's teaching to their limitations. And that, to me, is a real concern. I go clear back you know, to my mother in second grade for 32 years. You know, It's about finding a way to really identify what's going on with these children and getting them the correct support. 
Um, and just to briefly share a story around this, I had a parent, a father that I had known for some time who contacted me several years back about his teenage son. His teenage son had been in special education. He was in high school now, had been in special education his entire time in school. And this boy was sitting in the library one day, bored, and he just decided to hack the school's computer system to change a grade because he didn't like his grade. This was That's the first time that anyone recognized this child was brilliant. Wow. And what had happened is he had become suicidal, and so he was kicked out of this school for hacking into that computer system. He'd become suicidal. His father called me. He said, we're in dire straits. We need your help. To come on in. We ran the assessments. We found out that he had a mixed um, variation between auditory and visual processing. We did 20 hours of brain training with him. The next year, he was in a new school. He scored the highest on the math state exam of anyone in the history of that school. Wow. That's amazing. It was totally amazing. And he was a brilliant young man. And mm-hmm. I had been invited to one of the parent support groups, and the young man was there that evening to help with the technology because clearly he had a gift. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I just turned to him, and it was very impromptu. And I asked him so we, if he would like to speak that evening to the group and mm-hmm. just share his experience. And he said, yes, he would. Without any prompting, he got up and about five minutes gave them an eloquent to these parents describing, he said, let me describe what my life was like before neurofeedback. And he went on to tell his struggles. And he actually said to that group of parents that he was suicidal. He said if he had not had help and intervention from this neurofeedback, he would either have killed himself or someone else. Oh, wow. And then That's he, amazing. Yeah, and then he said, let me tell you what my life is like now. And he told me the story. Yeah. When you look at today's situation, too, because there's a lot of, respectfully, everybody's claiming mental health. Yes. But there's a very fine line there because it is a reason, but then we have to diagnose it to make sure it is mental health rather than just an excuse. It can be an excuse, but let's let's look at him. So what had happened, his entire academic career, he had been channeled into a Mm low-performing situation He couldn't remember what teachers were telling him in the classroom. So he himself had taken on the label of not being very smart. Mm -hmm. And he was an angry teenager because there was a part of him that felt like he was smart. And so he was getting insulted. He was being bullied. These are children who are subject to bullying in school. Social media is horrible for these children as well. So this is really a very important topic and of utmost urgency for a lot of these children, that we really help parents and teachers understand the complexity of what they're looking at. And instead of just trying to dial down the behaviors, which are just symptoms, we need to be digging deeper and get to that root cause of what's really going on. And that's the case with mental health. And I can tell you I deal with a lot of people, adults and children who come in diagnosed with mental health conditions, Uh, anywhere from anxiety, depression, uh, chronic pain, trauma, PTSD. The list goes on. Oppositional defiant disorder, obsessive-compulsive disorder, intermittent explosive disorder. And in every single case, 85 to 90% of these folks have these underlying auditory and visual processing problems that are contributing to their overall difficulties in life and their struggle because most people who have this just think they're not very smart. That's fascinating because what you just said is that the program that you have is not only working for ADHD individuals, but it applies to everybody else because, again, it's rewiring the brain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It has a very wide reach. And back to the book, the reason I wrote that is because I think it's highly critical time frame that we start looking at this within these children, but then it expands out because we have children who are depressed. I had a kindergartner who had been kicked out of three kindergartens because wow. of his behavior. It's five years old, and think of the emotional impact on him and on the family 
for a five-year-old who's been kicked out of three kindergarten classes. What did that do to that little boy? Yeah. It, yeah. That's a mental health problem in the brewing, in the making, because mm-hmm. he's going to have low self-esteem, poor self-confidence. He's going to think there's something wrong with him. Right. And, you know, behavioral interventions, parents tend to, you know, who are supportive can, you know, go one direction. Those who are less patient go a different direction. But rarely do they kind of hit the mark on what's right. going on here and what's really underneath it. Right, right. Very interesting. How do parents empower their children at home? Mm-hmm. Well, it's a very good question and very important. And, again, that's where I kind of point people to uh, the material to understand, are you dealing with auditory, are you dealing with visuals? Because if you don't have a clue what you're dealing with, you're just, you might as well be blindfolded throwing a dart at the wall because you're, mm-hmm. you're not really knowing exactly what's going on. I have seen some parents who have been able to, through a lot of trial and error, figure out that when they tell their child to do something, it doesn't work. But if they've created a visual list of chores and remind their child to go check the chore list, that's working better. And it's like, well, mm-hmm. this is because when we you know, assess this child, the auditory processing is weaker. So some parents have figured it out. You know, my hope is to be able to give parents tools to not have to struggle so much themselves in figuring out what's going on, and particularly, how can they advocate for interventions at school through IEPs and 504s? And I actually, once we do these assessments, I actually can craft these letters for schools so parents can advocate for this. I've been working with an attorney who we have a particularly um, reticent school district Mm -hmm. for one little boy here in the area, and so I've been working with an attorney kind of craft the language to how to, because they choose the wrong assessments in a lot of cases. And so if we find out that there's a lot of brain visual processing problems, you need to get different kinds of assessments. These paper and pencil or computer-based, uh, uh, you know, answer the question kinds of things don't work for every child. And it doesn't mean that they have a cognitive problem. And so really it's understanding what are the behaviors telling you decode those behaviors if you can kind of, you know, pull back on the response pattern. It's like, well, what is this repetitive behavior that I'm seeing? Is my child losing the homework all the time, losing the backpack, losing the keys, losing the shoes, can't find this, can't find this? Then that's probably a visual processing problem. Uh, And so just understanding that, having more patience, and then seeing, well, what does work? You know, how if I break things down into one step at a time, does that have a greater impact? Do I get better results? If Mm -hmm. I demonstrate how to do something, do I get better results? And so it's really trial and error. It's a little bit of running an experiment. It's like, well, what will work for my child? What will work for my spouse (laughs) Mm -hmm, (laughs) to do that? (laughs) I can tell you. Losses and people with ADHD and auditory and visual processing problems have a rough go of it, too. Right, right. So true. Where can someone go to buy your book, get more information about your services and programs, and keep up with your latest happening? Mm-hmm. Um, my website is www.myname.connie.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.
adults have read this book and they see themselves in there as well and right. have uh, contacted me. And so the application of that really is knowledge and expanding our knowledge, opening to the um, different perception and paradigm perhaps about what we are observing in people and trying best to kind of pull back the frustration or the judgment of another person until we can better understand what they're going through. And so it's really about building hope and um, processes. There's information about neurofeedback in there. There's information about neuroplasticity, about behaviors. There's information about IEPs and 504 plans. So uh, parenting and teaching tips and a lot of case studies. And there are people I've actually worked with. And so it resonates differently, I think, with different people. When they read it, it's like what they need is unique sometimes to them. But it's really understanding there's a different narrative out here about ADHD. It is not a hopeless cause. There isn't just one way to tackle this. There are alternative ways that are non-invasive, which is what a neurofeedback is considered. I also offer psychotherapy, um, telehealth as services um, as needed in some cases, too. So there are a lot of different ways people can do this, and certainly the newsletter might be a way to get started. If you're not sure you want to jump into the book, you can get the first three chapters and see if this is resonating as well. Thank you. The book is excellent. It's very engaging. I love the cover. (laughs) And to me, it's interesting because what happens is that the book in itself, it speaks to you, so to speak. It's got so much information in it. It's very well organized and written and so forth. It's very informative. And, of course, you have all the tips in there and so forth. So it's really, like I say, if nothing else, it covers both sides of the equation, people that are actually Mm -hmm. in the ADHD world as well as people that just want to be educated so that you have a better understanding when you run into people that supposedly a low challenge, so to speak, then you Mm -hmm. have a better understanding. So that's what I love about Mm -hmm. the book, and it's fascinating from that Mm -hmm. standpoint of view. What is next for you? Well, I am continuing some of these journeys with folks like you, and I'm getting ready to do a little bit bigger PR push. Um, I'm getting ready to actually launch some other features up on my website and um, create some other tools for the assessment process to make it a little easier for parents to understand what this material is. Um, and ultimately, I'll be moving into hopefully training people. Um, we're looking at getting into some of the service provision for folks in some of the service areas, such as a police or firefighters. And I have a contract with the VA now where I'm doing neurofeedback with uh, veterans. And so we're very happy Fantastic. to be doing that. I do talk with the, uh, with the veterans as well. And that just Hones all the way back to my doctorate program when I worked at the VA. The fact Fantastic. that I really wanted to be able to do something yeah, for our veterans and military folks and uh, people who are in these high-impact service right. positions right. in our communities that can be affected by trauma. So there are a few things out there on the, on the horizon, and some are coming about pretty quickly. So it's exciting and um, fascinating, and it's a joy to to be sharing this information with you and your subscribers. and um, There's a contact me button up there on the website as well if people just need to have a 15 or 20 minute conversation with me. I prefer to call people and talk with them directly. I don't do too much of the email because it just ends up going back and forth too much. Right. So people can fill that out and if they say, hey, I don't know if this is applicable to me or I'm not sure if this is what's right for my son or daughter, You know, just fill that out and give me your phone number. And sometimes it might be good to give you a call, and I'm happy to do that. Fantastic. That's really wonderful. As we are closing this hour, since our show is about people, family, and living life, would you like to share a recipe for living with our listeners this morning? Mm. Well, I think about that. And really, for me, it's about a daily self-care. And that self-care involves quiet time. Um, reflection time, some exercise, good nutrition, um, and just keeping invested in curiosity always. (laughs) So true. So true. Dr. Connie, thank you for the wonderful recipe for living and for spending this hour with me on From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. To all our listeners, please join me next Wednesday morning, February 28th, 
at 10 a.m. Central Time. My guest will be Amy Newmark, the publisher and editor-in-chief with Chicken Soup for the Soul. Amy and I will be having a conversation about their latest release, Chicken Soup for the Soul, Me and My Dog, 101 Tales of Canine Companionship. For additional information about this show and future shows, please go to FromMyMama'sKitchenTalkRadio.com. Thank you for listening and have a very blessed week. Dr. Connie, it's been a true pleasure. Thank you again and have a very blessed day. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. 